Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We'll pick up in the middle of that. But before we do that, I want to have you to turn to the book of Daniel. Hold your hand here to Revelation 6 and turn to the book of Daniel because I want to help you to understand something about our God that's exciting. And that is that God doesn't do anything except He first tell you what He's going to do. And God will tell you what He's going to do and many times will tell you when He's going to do it. And He'll be faithful all along the way so that whenever it happens, just as He said, when He said it would happen, that you understand that he is a God who's a sovereign God in charge of all things. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 24 through 27, it speaks about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now remember that when it's talking about weeks, it talked about the number 7. So when it says 70 weeks, it's 70 times the number 7, or that many weeks of years. It's talking about 490 years. 70 times 7 equals 490 years. 490 years that God specified through Daniel and that prophecy that he was going to use the nation of Israel to be his primary witness and to accomplish his purposes. All right? So you get that in your mind, 490 years that God's going to use them. Then he breaks it up. You'll read through there in Daniel chapter 9. He breaks it up and says that there are going to be three sections of those years. There's going to be seven years, then there are going to be 62 years, and then there is a final year, a final, our final week, those 70 last seven years. So there's seven weeks of years, that's 49 years, and then there's going to be 62 weeks of years, and there's going to be one. Right? That's the breakup. Well, he tells you when it's going to happen. He said that those weeks of years began to count whenever Jerusalem has been rebuilt and reestablished with its courts and with its plazas. Now, if you remember when they deported the uh, people of Israel over to Babylon, whenever they returned after being there for 70 years, there were about four different returns. One of those first returns recorded in Haggai and Zechariah was the fact they were to return to rebuild their temple. All right. Well, rebuilding the temple is one thing. But in order for a city to be established, it had to be protected and had to be able to carry on life. It was significant that they had their wall rebuilt. So the wall is issued, the rebuilding of the wall is not issued until 444 B.C. Remember, we're going backwards. It's 515 B.C. when the temple should be rebuilt. Now it's going to turn around in 444 B.C. There was given the commission that the wall of the city would be rebuilt and would be reestablished. We know that in the time of Nehemiah, right? That's the time when Nehemiah was to go back and rebuild the wall. Well, it says Nehemiah built, rebuilt the wall to a certain size, certain height, by a certain number of years or a certain number of days. But the full establishment or rebuilding of the wall and the establishment of the courts and plazas and all of that took about 49 years. Okay, so let me show you what happens. 444 B.C. is the beginning of the weeks of years, those 490 years. That first seven years that it divides out is thought to be the time from the beginning of whenever they rebuilt the wall 
till they reestablished Jerusalem in its entirety. It took them 49 years to reestablish the, the plazas and the courtyards to reestablish the city as it was. Then, after those 49 years, there were going to be the next 62 weeks of years. All right? 62 weeks of years that are going to happen. And that's going to end whenever the Messiah is revealed and he is cut off. And I told you last week, when was the Messiah revealed? When did they recognize him as the Messiah? He did what? He came riding in on a white donkey. Remember that? On a donkey. He came riding in. And as he rode in on that donkey... They bowed down before him and said that he is, a, he is what? He's the Messiah. He's the one. Hosanna to him. But then before the week was out, what did they do? They killed him and they cut him off. So the time between that 444 B.C. and this time of 33 B.C. is the time of those 69 weeks of years. But there's one week left. One week of years left. Seven years that are, be, are left, and that's going to be held on after the Messiah has been cut off. And when is that? That's the period of time we're talking about right now in the Revelation. It's the time after the church has been raptured. When the church has been raptured. Because remember when Jesus died and was resurrected, he established his what? His church. And we've been living in the church age since then. Jesus established his church. It's built upon him as the foundation. And all these years, we've been living in the church age. And the church age will be over at the rapture. And when the rapture of the church happens, and we as the church go to be with him in heaven, then starts those last seven years, which are called the years of tribulation. Three and a half of those years are tribulation, are the time, the birthing of sorrows. The last three and a half are called the great tribulation. That's seen there in verse 27 of Daniel 9. He says, three and a half years, halfway through that week, he'll make a covenant. Halfway through that, he'll break the covenant. And then he'll go in and he will offer sacrifices to himself at the temple. He'll call himself God. Talking about the Antichrist and what's going to happen in regard to that. What I'm simply sharing with you is everything that God has said would happen, happen just according to time. And you have a little handout back here you need to pick up whenever you go out, all right? A little handout will help you regarding these years. Because there's a little bit of confusion about that if you begin to think about it. In 444 B.C., and you begin to add up how many years that is, it looks like it doesn't work out. The problem of that is is because there are two different calendars. There's the Jewish calendar... And then there's what is called the Gregorian calendar. What do we use? We use the Gregorian calendar, all right? But you have to understand there's a Jewish calendar, and when God is writing to the Jewish people, he is according to the Jewish calendar. What is the Jewish calendar? The Jewish calendar has 12 months, and every one of those months has 30 days, all right? 30 days. Now, how do you know that? Because whenever he describes it here in the Word of God, he's going to say that half of that week of years, 42, 42 months, 42 months, and he's going to define it. It's going to be 1,260 days. Well, if you know math, you divide 42 into 1,260, and how many days is it? It's 30 days. In the Jewish calendar, every month is 30 days. But for us, it's not that way. We have some months that have 31 days. Some have 30. Some have 28. Every four years, February has the leap year, 29, right? All those were. 
I give you this calendar so that you, or this chart so that you can see that it works out just the way God says it works out. He gives you the number of days, the number of days that for that 69 years, it's a total of 1,173,880 1, days between that time. 444 B.C. and the death of Jesus was 173,880. I give you what it says on the Jewish calendar. You say, well, boy, that don't like it works out. If you think about Jesus, supposed to have been 33 years old when he was killed. But look over here, and it'll show you how it works out. Because in the Gregorian calendar, it'll tell you how many days that is. It even tells you that when it goes from B.C. to A.D., it's only one year. It's not two years. There's only one year. And it'll explain to you about the leap years. It'll t- explain to you about, and it'll show you that each one of those calendars comes out exactly the same amount of days between when the wall, the, the decree to establish the wall, and whenever Jesus was recognized as a Messiah and cut off. All right? I give you that so, because I want you to understand those truths are important because God tells us what he's going to do, when he's going to do, so that he knows and helps us to see that he is God and he's in charge, sovereign. Amen? The last of those weeks, though, is what we're talking about here in the Revelation. We're talking about it. Remember what's happened. The church has been raptured in chapters 4 and 5. The church recognized or represented by the 24 elders. They're in the presence of God. They're before the Lamb. They're in there worshiping. That's where we're going to be. Amen? We're going to be there in glory in chapter 4 and 5. But then beginning in chapter 6 is the time of the breaking of the seals. That book that, the, that was there, that no one could break the seals, that seven-sealed book. But the Lamb of God, it says, is worthy. He comes. He is worthy to break the seal. And he takes the book out of the Father's hand, and he begins to break the seal. Last week, we saw he broke the first four of the seals. And when he broke those seals, the first seal, I want to see how much you paid attention, how much you studied this week, how much you remember, all right? Don't look down there. Don't you be cheating, all right? That first seal... It's represented by a white horse. Somebody comes riding in on a white horse. What was their weapon? What was their weapon? A bow. A bow without what? Without arrows. It represents who? Is it Jesus? No, it's the Antichrist. He comes in riding on a white horse without arrows. Why? Because he's going to conquer without a war. The world's just going to turn over. And let him be the ruler because he's going to have the right answers. And they feel like he's the answer for everything. So the first thing that happens in regard to this is the Antichrist comes. The second of those horses is what color? Red. Representing what? War. That war is going to break out not only between nations. It's going to break out between families. It's going to be civil war. There's going to be bloodshed everywhere. Because now the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is not there. War will be everywhere. And then what, what was the color of that third horse? Third horse is black. And what did the rider of that horse have? Had scales in his hand and, de- and decreed what? That there's a famine, going to be an awful famine that's going to happen. To the point that a man can work all day long and can only make enough to buy enough food for him. Not taking care of his family or anybody else. It's going to be a horrible famine time. And then the last of those, that fourth seal, is the color of that horse was what? Pale or greenish pale. And, and, and what did it represent? Who was riding on it? Death is riding on it. Who's following that death? Hades, all right? Death is the experience. Hades is the place, right? 
And, and how did death come into the world? Oh, it came in those four ways that God says he judges the world, right? War, through war, through famine, through the wild beast, through plagues, plagues and pestilence. And at that fourth, in that fourth seal, when it is broken, what does it say? How many people of the population of the world at that time will die? What percentage? One-fourth of the population of the world will die by the breaking of the fourth seal. Imagine that. I told you last week, we have 7.6 billion people in our world. That would be 1.9 billion people dying within a matter of a year or so. That'd be a horrible, horrible experience. We don't want to be there, amen? (laughs) I told you, this is not for your information's sake. This is to make sure you're not there. You have the opportunity to go to heaven. You have the opportunity of grace. Jesus is on the throne. He's offering everything for you. He's paid the price. Know Jesus, amen? And tell everybody you know to know Jesus so they don't have to be there. Because we don't want to be in this experience because if you are without Christ and the rapture of the church happens, you will be left here and you will be experiencing what this says. Now, let's pick up there the seal, the fifth seal. The fifth seal is found here in the Revelation chapter 6. And the fifth seal is unusual because it is not a seal of action. It's a seal of results, of results and response. What it says in verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, should be completed also. Right, whenever you look at at the seal five and six we're looking at today, you need to understand there's responses. This is a time of response. One of those responses is what's happening in heaven. What is a response a result that is happening in heaven. That's seal number five. And seal number six, we'll get to in just a minute, is the response or the result of what is happening on the earth and what is taking place on the earth. So you got to imagine John is here and he's seeing this vision and God has given this to him. And he's kind of standing here and he's, he's seeing in one realm what's happening in heaven and looks in the other realm what's happening on the earth. He saw over here in 4 and 5 the Lamb being worshipped and the Father being worshipped and all the praise and glory. And he sees then here in chapter 6, he's seen already four of those seals being broken and the chaos and catastrophe of the world. Now as he's here, he's looking up into heaven and there in heaven he is seeing a result of what has taken place in these first four seals. The events that have happened, and primarily these are the events that have happened in the first three and a half years. Most theologians believe that that dividing of those seven years, the first three and a half years in the book of Revelation are only covered in those first four seals. Whenever you get to the sixth seal, and you'll see what happens there, all the way through the seventh seal, and through the trumpets, and through the bowls of wrath, all of that is the last three and a half years of the tribulation called the great tribulation. 
So get that in your mind. What we read so far, those first four, first three and a half years. Short amount of, uh, of writing about those three and a half years. The rest of the book is about the great tribulation or those final three and a half years. But here in the fifth seal, they're seeing the result of what has happened in those first four seals. Those first three and a half. And what do they find out? He says that whenever he sees up into heaven and the break in that fifth seal, he saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of their testimony and because of the word of God. Now, you're going to have to stay with me right here, all right? Do y'all feel like you're, you're, you're ready to do mental calisthenics this morning? Are you ready to stick with me, okay? Wake up, punch somebody, pinch somebody, do something. You're going to have to wake up in order to stay here. Remember that God gave instructions for the tabernacle to be, re, to be built by Moses. You remember that? He gave specific instruction of how the tabernacle would be built. It would have the outer court with a brazen altar, the laver. It would have the, the holy place where you'd have the incense, altar of, the golden altar of incense, the showbread and the candlesticks. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant, or the Holy of Holies. He gave specific details. But remember what he told Moses when he gave those details. He said, you are to make it exactly the way I am telling you to make it. For you are making this physical replica of what is in the spiritual realm. Okay, get that in your mind. What Moses made the tabernacle physically was only a physical replica of the true tabernacle that is where? That is in heaven, all right? It is the true tabernacle in heaven. That's why it was so important he made it specifically just like God said. Because the true tabernacle is in heaven. So all of those parts of the tabernacle, that brazen altar, the golden altar of incense, all of that, you understand, is in heaven. So whenever he says that he looks, when the seal is broken, he looks and he sees the souls of these under the altar. He's not looking here on the earth. He is looking in heaven. And he's seeing the real tabernacle, the real issue tabernacle, not that which was the replica and no more here on the earth that Moses built. So he's looking up into heaven, and what does he see? He sees the souls of those people who have been slain. Look at it in there, verse 9. He sees the souls of those people who have been slain, and their souls are underneath the altar, underneath that altar in heaven. And there they are there, and they have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are people who in this three and a half years of the tribulation, that first three and a half years, when all of these things have happened, when the church is gone, when it's no longer going to be easy to be saved by the grace of God as it is today, my friend. In that period of time, listen... There are going to be those people who are going to hold on to the word of God. And they're going to have a testimony of where they believe God. Now, that's going to be a real interesting thing. And it's going to tell you in chapter 7 who these people are. A real interesting thing is going to be people who've never heard the word before. And all of a sudden, they pick up a Bible. They begin to read it. God gets a hold of their heart. There are going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to go out and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And people are going to be saved. They're going to be the two anointed witnesses that are there that God sends miraculously into this world to give a witness. There are going to be different people who are going to have, and different means whereby people are going to be saved. But here's a great thing. There are going to be people saved during the time of the tribulation. 
And chapter 7, in that interlude, it'll tell us about who they're going to be. Some of those are going to be Jews, and some of those are going to be Gentiles who never heard, who never heard the word, and who hear the word for the very first time in the time of tribulation, and they will respond to the gospel. For those people who have already heard the gospel, and you are one of those, if you have heard the gospel, you will not have an opportunity to be saved. You will rather have a deluded spirit, and you will not be able to understand the truth, and you will not respond to the gospel, and you will be lost. But for those who've never heard, they will have an opportunity, and many, many Jews will come to faith in Christ. But understand this, when they come to faith in Christ, when they give their heart to Christ in that time of the tribulation, it's going to cost them dearly. In our church right now, when somebody gets baptized, I can tell you spontaneously what happens. When somebody gets baptized in our church, people begin to applaud. We rejoice and we celebrate because either that child or that adult has given their heart to Christ. And we embrace them and we love them and we take them out to dinner and we do everything else. It's a celebration. It's not going to be that way in the time of tribulation. When somebody gives their heart to Christ, it's going to cost them greatly. It's going to cost them dearly. Matter of fact, it's going to cost many of them their lives. They are going to give their heart to Jesus knowing it's going to cost them their lives. Why? Because they believe the word of God, because they believe the testimony, because they hold on to their faith, because they're going to consider that salvation and a walk with God is more important than life itself. And they're going to be willing to die. And whenever they die, their bodies have died. Their souls, it says, are going to be underneath the altar in the tabernacle of God. Underneath the altar of the tabernacle of God. Now, I want you to get that. When you think about it, underneath the altar, that don't sound real good. No, it's a precious picture. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, it tells you what happens. On the brazen altar, the, the sacrifice was offered on the altar of sacrifice. But whenever the lamb was killed or the goat or whatever calf was there, they took the blood and after the sacrifice was made, which is a sacrifice for the judgment of sin, they took the blood of that animal and they poured it at the base of the altar. They poured it at the base. It wasn't on the altar. The the sacrifice was on the altar, but the blood was poured at the base of the altar. For see, the sacrifice was for the judgment of sin. But this here is an offering, was an offering before Almighty God. An offering of the blood of that animal before God. And so the picture of those souls being at the base of the altar, it's not the judgment. It's the fact that they are a sacrifice or that they are an offering of their love and of their relationship and how precious God is to them there at the base of the altar. See, where somebody in the world might say, well, they were horribly treated. God sees them as a sacrifice of love and praise and adoration to him. And he places them at the base of the altar because they are an adoration and a worship instrument of him. It's not a bad place. It's a great place. Amen? And so they're placed there at the soul's altar. Now, it tells us a number of different things. One it tells us is that there are souls and they're living souls after somebody dies. Amen? I hope you do not think that you are like a dog. (laughs) Well, I know some of you think your dogs are in heaven. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry to hurt your feeling. Your dog may be in heaven not because they were redeemed. Maybe God just gives you a dog in heaven because you like dogs. Amen? But they're not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
You are not like other animals that when you are die, your existence is gone. You have an eternal soul. You're made in the image of God. You are a spirit. And therefore, that soul will exist forever. Whenever those who were martyred here, and the word martyr means to be a witness, those who martyred here and died here and were a witness for Christ, they go and their souls are in heaven. They are an eternal soul that is an offering unto God. Unto God. They are there. So understand this. You are an eternal soul. Your soul is going to be somewhere. It's either going to be in heaven or it's going to be in hell. It's going to be in the place of reward or it's going to be the place of punishment. So guard your soul. Amen? What's the uniqueness of a soul versus a spirit? Well, a soul must always have been attached and have a relationship with a body. Wherever there's a soul, there's a body. Okay? Spirits, God's spirit, God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a body. Spirits don't have to have a body. But souls always have a body, whether they are in body or out of body. These are no longer in body because their bodies have been killed. But they are there and they are a living soul that was at one time in a body. And here what happens and will eventually be again in a body, especially prepared for them. Amen. Especially prepared for them. That glorified body we're going to get, mine's going to be great. It's going to be better than any of yours. The glorified body is going to be wonderful. Amen? But that soul was one that was in a body, no longer in a body, there at the base of the altar as a sacrifice to God. Why? Because of their witness. Now, notice what they say. It tells you, it helps you understand exactly who they are. Look at verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? You are holy and true. Notice they're not angry at God about what happened to them. Amen? And they say, God, you're holy and you're true. You're a wonderful God. We don't think you've done anything wrong. We're not bitter because we died in our faith. We're thankful that we offered our lives as a sacrifice to you. How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood? Here's important. On those who dwell on the earth. Now, when is this happening? This is after the rapture of the church, right? This has happened in those first three and a half years. And they have died in those first three and a half years. And what are they saying now? Lord, how long is it going to take for you to avenge our death? Oh, Lord, how long is it going to be until you judge the people, listen now, who are alive on this earth, who took our lives? Who snuffed out our life because of our faith and our walk with God. So get the picture. It's the rapture of the church. We're not talking about these souls up here are not people who were in the church. People in the church are already there in heaven, right? Already wearing white garments. We're the 24 elders. So these people are the ones who have died in that first three and a half years. And they have been killed by people who are on the earth and who are still at that time living on the earth. They're still living on the earth. So they're saying, Lord, when are you going to come? When are you going to make a difference? When are you going to change and judge this world? Talking about those three and a half years. So these souls that are saved, offered there at that altar of sacrifice, are those souls, those people, those witnesses who died in that first three and a half years. It's not any who die right now. Those are part of the 24 elders. This is what happens then in verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. 
What were they given by God? First thing they were given was a white robe. Now, different theologians have different pictures. I told you earlier that, that those who are the 24 elders, that they, had, they were dressed in white garments. You remember what I told you about that? What I personally believe is this, that whenever we're dressed in the white garments, is after the rapture of the church. What happens to the rapture of the church? The dead in Christ will what? Will rise what? First. They rise, they rise first, right? And then those of us who are alive are gathered with them in the air, and we are changed in the twinkling of an eye. Why are we changed? We're changed from a natural body to a glorified body. Because they rise first before we ever get to go up, their old earthly bodies here are transformed and glorified bodies, and now their eternal souls are joined back again with now a glorified body, and they have a white garment on them, and they are ready, all right? They are ready. Here it says that God doesn't say that they're wearing a white garment. It says God gives to them a white robe or a white garment. It doesn't say give. Now, some say, well, that means that people who are in heaven, that they have some kind of body in heaven before you ever get the glorified body, and the glorified body would be different from that body. Well, it may be true, and if it is true, that's great and wonderful, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's this. I, it doesn't say that it, they are wearing the garment or put on the garment. It says they were given the garment. They're given a white robe. And what is that white robe? I don't think because they're living souls at that time that they could wear a white robe. But I think what God says is, here's your white robe. Just wait a minute. Just rest a while. Because in a little bit, I'm going to do just like I did in the first with the church. I'm going, to ra- I'm going to raise up your body. It's going to be a glorified body, and you've got a white robe that's going to go on it. You're going to have a white robe. It is a promissory note. It is an earnest of their position, their standing with God. Don't have it on. They've just been given to them. Then what does he say to them? He says, listen, you just, here's your white robe. Just wait a minute. They, and that you should rest for a little while longer. That you should rest. That, that's going to be a place of rest. It's not going to be a place of torment. It's no purgatory or anything. It's a place of rest. It's going to be a place of joy. It's going to be a place where the presence of the Lord is. But they are to rest because they're saying, Lord, when's this going to happen? Hey, you just rest for a little bit while longer, and then it'll all come to pass. And why does he say they need to rest? Because of what he says here. Listen to what it says. And you will rest until the number of those fellow servants and their brethren who are to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. He says, there are others who are going to come join you. There are others who are yet to be saved. There are others who are going to come into the family of God. There are others who are going to be redeemed. Others whose souls are going to join you at the altar. There are those who will be your brethren. They're going to pay a great price, but there are people going to be saved. And whenever it is completed that the last one is saved, then it will be time for me to act, for me to work. For me to come. And when's that going to be? After the great tribulation. Amen. When Jesus shows up, it's called the second coming of Christ. Well, look what happens in verse 12, the sixth seal. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its un ripe figs when the shaken by a great wind and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it rolled away and every mountain and island were moved out of their places now this in the break of the sixth seal brings about a catastrophic 
cosmic event. It says that there, first of all, there is going to be a great earthquake. Now, this is going to be an earthquake like has never happened in the world. Right now, we'll get a report, well, there was an earthquake in Peru. Or there's an earthquake in California. Or there's an earthquake here. Or there's a tsunami here. There are specific places where earthquakes happen where the crust of the earth begins to move. The word for that is the word seismos. That's the Greek word, seismos. We get our term seismograph from that. And it determines the shaking. The word seismos literally means shaking. It means to shake or shaking. The Greek word. It says right here, God says there's going to be a great earthquake. Now, it's an earthquake like has never happened before. Ours right now are isolated to certain particular places. This earthquake is going to be a worldwide, listen to me now, not just worldwide, it is going to be a worldwide, universal, cosmic experience. You get it? It's not going to be like a little shaking over here. The whole world is going to shake. The whole world is going to move. How do you know that? Down there it says, every mountain and every island has been moved out of its place. Can you imagine that? You just see the earthquakes that happen just in small areas, how destructive. Could you imagine an earthquake all over the world shaking the entire world? And it says, every island, every mountain will be moved. And not only that, he says that earthquake and that shaking is going to happen, as I says, in the cosmos or in the universe. You know what else he says is going to happen? He says he's going to shake, look in there, he's going to shake the heavens to the point that the stars will fall from the sky. They will fall from the sky as though a fig tree, a ripened fig tree would be shaken. Same word. God's not only going to shake the earth, he's going to shake the heavens. Can you imagine that? He said that in Haggai, he prophesied in Haggai 2.6. He says, there's coming a time when I will shake both heaven and earth. I will shake heaven and earth. It's going to be such a catastrophic event that the moon, it says the sun will become black. The sun will become black the moon will turn to a red color like the red of blood. And the stars will be cast down. Even as though the firmament is opened up like a scroll. It is going to be an unbelievable event. And this is one of the first events that are going to happen in that second three and a half years. You know what brings that in? It's called the abomination of desolation. That's what brings it in. That's when the Antichrist, who had made a covenant and a treaty with the Jews, is going to break the treaty. He's going to go into the temple. He's going to proclaim himself as God. He's going to offer sacrifices unto himself. He's going to break and he's going to begin to mistreat the Jews in a horrible way. And whenever he desecrates, he desecrates the temple, God begins to work and move. And this is the first act of that. The entire world is going to be shaken. The entire cosmos is going to be shaken by Almighty God. Now, let me tell you something. It says that our world is held together by the power of who? By the power of God. You understand that? The only reason that the elements hold together 
and that they continue to rotate in order those electrons around that nucleus of all those atoms. The only way and reason that happens is because the power of God holds them together. At any time God wanted to take his hand off an atom, it would split. And you, What's that called? A nuclear reaction. All that power, though, God holds all of that together. And he holds this world in his hand. And when God gets ready and God's had enough, God will just shake the world. He'll shake the universe. And God says, on the breaking of the sixth seal, I will shake your world beyond what you could ever imagine. Something consistent in the Bible is darkness or blackness and earthquake. And Mount Sinai, you know what it was? There was darkness there and there was the earthquaking when God gave the law. Isn't it interesting that on Calvary, there was darkness and an earthquake when God reached down and touched us by grace. All throughout the Bible, God uses the earthquake to reveal his presence, his power, and his judgment. He'll use darkness to do the same, same like the plagues of Egypt where they had darkness. It's the power of God working and moving. Look what the results are here on this earth. Please do not miss this. Look what happens in verse 15 and 16. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich, rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. That's the encompasses everybody from the king to the slave. Everybody who's left on this earth, everybody who's living in this on this earth. Every person, their first response to God shaking and moving and changing this world was they go hide. <laughs> they go hide. Isn't that what sin causes somebody to do? When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and hid. Whenever you sin, what do you do? Go look at your preschooler. They'll tell you. <laughs> Whenever your preschooler does something wrong, what are they going to do? Hide. What's your teenager going to do when they do something wrong? Hide. What's your spouse going to do when they did something wrong? Hide. We hide. And their first response to this judgment of God is to hide. Hide. Now, I would think they'd be wanting to find God, wouldn't you? I think they'd be searching for God, but they're not. They don't want to just hide. Look what happens in verse 16. And they circled this word, said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. You know what? Those people are theologians. They know what the day is. What'd they say? It is the day of the wrath of God. There's no questioning whether or not there's a God. They're not wondering whether they know there's a God. There's the reality of a God. And they know what's happening. The day of the wrath of God. And here's an interesting, the wrath of the lamb. You ever think about a lamb and being wrathful with the The wrath of the lamb, the judgment of God is coming. The judgment of God is upon us. Now, what would you think would be the normal response? What would you hope would be the normal response whenever the wrath of God is falling and they know that God is bringing that about? Don't you think that they ought to fall on their faces? They ought to repent. They ought to ask God, God, forgive us. God, help us. God, show us mercy. But they do not. Look in your Bible. What does it say? They don't call on God. They call on dumb 
death rocks. That's what they call on. They call on mountains and rocks to help them and to hide them from God. You're talking about a pitiful experience when somebody is going through the wrath of God, who needs the mercy of God, who needs to call out to God, and all they can call out to are rocks and mountains who cannot help them and cannot save them from the wrath of God. Final thing I want you to see is the question they ask. I mean, God can reveal reveal things... It's amazing to me through people and instances and situations you never imagined. Listen to what they said in verse 17. Listen. For the great day of their wrath has come. Here's the question. And who is able to stand? These people who are running from God. These people who are denying God. These people who are calling out to rocks and mountains. In the midst of it, they make a statement. Who can stand? Well, that is an eternal question. And they're saying, who is going to make it? Who can be saved? Who can experience the mercy of God? In the midst of this horrible, horrible experience, who can stand? And that's the introduction to chapter 7. For see, chapter 7 is not a chronological order. Chapter chapter 7 is an interlude, and it answers that question about two groups of people. Read it. We'll be studying it next. Listen. It answers the question about who's going to be saved, Jews and Gentiles. And it even answers the question of how they're going to be saved, what instruments God's going to use whereby they might be saved. To answer that question, who can stand? Yes, some will stand. These are the ones who will stand. And this is how they will stand. And how they'll be saved out of this horrible, horrible, great tribulation. The good news for you, you don't have to be there. Amen? And if you end up there, God's going to remind you every day that I preach this message. God's going to remind you every day you had an opportunity to respond. You had an opportunity to be saved. You had an opportunity to accept the grace of God, accept the Lamb of God without having to go through the horrible experiences. You had that opportunity. What did you do with it? What did you do with it? And I know people say, oh, well, I'm going to eventually get saved one day. I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to make that right before I die. Let me tell you something that happens to most people. They die one day early. Most people die one day before they think they are. One day before they plan, they would. And if you're waiting for that day, you may be that person who dies early and you have lost your opportunity. Today's the day of salvation. Give your heart to Christ. And your heart ought to be burdened for anybody you know, anybody you love, anybody you care about who doesn't have a relationship with Christ that you don't know where they will be When the rapture of the church happens, you need to be praying for them. You need to be witnessing them. You need to be loving on them, helping them know they need Jesus. Amen. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. 
Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.